Hi, my name is Chris Samuel Major, and after years doing interviews and podcasts for other people, I finally decided to sit down and record one for myself. So to kick this off, um, I guess I have to introduce who I am. My background is primarily as a professional sailor. I started sailing when I was 18, that's 22 years ago, <laughs> and uh, I started sailing working on tall ships. I was uh, 18 years old, I was a uh, green as grass uh, school pupil in the UK, and somebody came into my school from a UK charity called Project Trust, and gave us the idea that maybe instead of going directly to the university that uh, we'd picked out, we could actually go and use the things we'd already learned in British education and, and be helpful somewhere around the world. And that charity was called Project Trust. And I thought, wow, this is, this is the thing. It was the first time, I think, in my life when I realized I was about to go off the reservation. And I, I went through the selection process up in the Isle of Col in the... Uh, in the UK, in Scotland, just off of Oban, and uh, got through that, and really had it in mind to go and be an English teacher. Like at the time, sailing was not anything I was interested in at all. My dad had a boat, a little westerly nomad, and looked that up on uh, Wikipedia. It's uh, it looks like a complete pig. Well, I didn't know anything about sailing, and uh, it had a stove, and it had little bunks, and you could sail on it, and that was sailing to me. I had no. Uh, aspirations for anything else or no information about anything else. I sailed a little bit on lasers and toppers as we all do at school, but that's it, no interest. Well, Project Trust changed everything because instead of sending me off to teach in Indonesia, which is what the guy that had come into our school had described and sounded brilliant to me, like uh, teaching in the morning and hanging out in a hammock in the afternoon seemed to be his story. No, Project Trust said that they thought it was better that I went to Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong. This is like 1995, I guess it would be, which um, uh, seems a long way off now. And the the idea of uh, looking something up and finding out about it involved going to a public library or a school library or asking people what they knew, like old old school methods of looking stuff up. And uh, I think I went to the public library and I probably looked at some reference books. I um, probably read the Berlitz Guide, I seem to remember. And I think I watched The Man with the Golden Gun, the James Bond film, and that was about it. That's what I knew about Hong Kong. And at the time, I remember getting quite sort of anxious, well, not anxious, but <laughs> probably irritated with Project Trust, saying, how can there be an out-of-bound school in Hong Kong? Like, it's a city. Like, is this an out-of-bound school up a skyscraper or something? Well, of course, the answer was wait and see. You know, the, it was a time where you didn't have so many expectations uh, so you went into things um, looking to learn and, and develop understanding as you went and I gotta say for me it was fantastic we landed at the airport I was with three other guys who were uh, with Project Trust as well we got met by uh, Frankie who drove the van out through the city of Hong Kong and it just started getting greener and greener and then there's a the sound of cicadas in the background and it's you know it's already like 36 degrees Celsius I was a little white kid from a village basically in the UK. I'd never been anywhere apart from like Spain and Mallorca with my parents for holiday. And suddenly I'm in this far-flung corner of the still then empire. And um, finally we turned down this little driveway and going through all these trees and jungle. And in the middle of seemingly nowhere was this little idyllic, maybe two acre site 
um, which had been there since 75, and um, it was the Outward Bound School in Hong Kong. And uh, it wasn't there at the time, but there was a deep water jetty where I knew where they had this tall ship called Chi Fung, which means Spirit of Resolution. And uh, that was, as I say, the turning point for me. Suddenly, sailing became part of my life. The, the first night, we just jumped off the jetty and got to know people and hang out, what have you. The second day, I think we did some training. But the second day night, uh, I went out into town with a load of the instructors and got super drunk, um, trying to impress uh, people with my drinking abilities at 18, which is, I guess, where we're all at at that point. And um, ended up puking on my shoes in some back street in Hong Kong and getting piled onto a bus and sent home with the sun already up and, uh, and rolled up for my first day of proper work um, smelling like a, a pickled ferret, like uh, not good. Uh, <laughs> there was no way I could conceal what had happened. And um, I think the guys that were my superiors at the school, the lead instructors, thought, right, okay, we'll just send this guy a message that this is not uh, acceptable. So they, uh, when they started picking out the, the different duties for everybody, um, they said, oh, Chris, you can, um, you can go and join a Chi Fung. Like, okay, still bearing in mind at this point, I had no interest in saying, like, okay, this sounds great. I can just about make it through the end of this meeting without puking. They put me in a van. Van then goes for a, like, 30-minute um, ride up through the hills, like, Christ knows where. Finally coming down to a little place called Wangshak Pier, where I meet a speedboat. God help me, I'm in a speedboat for 30 minutes, like, bouncing and bouncing and bouncing, spray everywhere, and some instructor all smiles and shouting, oh, you must be so excited to join the ship. Like, yeah, I want to die right now. So... Anyway, I, we, we round this kind of headland and break out into some flatter water. The water actually became completely flat. It was very, very protected. We were up into Double Haven, which is the northeast corner of Hong Kong. And it's all kind of um, jungle clad, uh, very, very kind of rough, thorny, harsh jungle, not lush banana trees and things, but kind of tough subtropical jungle, um, arid, um, a, a stony kind of uh, reddish soiled um, slopes underneath the jungle and uh, we pull around into this one bay and there's this little tiny remote outpost of the school called Wong Lan Chao. It keeps going a little bit further through this very narrow cleft between these two islands. We break out into an open water area which was more like something from Captain Nemo's uh, like secret base. You'd expect the Nautilus to be rising up in the middle of the thing. It was like a caldera of a uh, of a volcano, is that the right word? I think that's the right word, called, uh, yeah, kind of like a volcano's blown up and there's now a kind of ring of islands in the center is this round circular open area. That's what Double Haven looks like. And in the middle of this was this huge white-hulled, uh, two-masted tall ship um, just coming onto the buoy and uh, people are furling up the sails, people are um, on deck, calling orders and, and bells are ringing and someone's swinging down off the bowsprit onto the buoy to secure the boat and we circled a couple times and uh, it really was the most remarkable moment I think almost in my life up until that point where I knew in that instant that something had happened like I had jumped the tracks that I was I was on like going out to Hong Kong was kind of a big deal anyway, but still the idea was go back to university in the UK. Um, I'm going to be 
uh, a lawyer, I think, was uh, on my mind at that time. And um, suddenly, man, like, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be a lawyer. I think something else is going to happen here. And uh, got swigged up onto the tall ship. And so began a completely other life for me. Um, suddenly, I was in amongst this group of exceptional people who their greatest wish was that I could take the knowledge for them. Like how many industries do you work in where the people ahead of you are almost trying to hold on to their skills and trying to protect what they know in a way of kind of creating a little empire for themselves. Knowledge is power, right? So if you keep hold of the power, then no one else is ever going to get ahead of you. But no, here we go on a tall ship. Suddenly we've got like 5,000 years of history come tumbling down and this incredibly energized group of people who want to pass it on. And at the time, you know, I'd been working for my father uh, as a mechanic. He, he ran garages uh, all his life. Um, back in the old days where you could like strip things apart and, uh, and work out what was wrong with them and then rebuild them. One of the most intuitive and uh, instinctive mechanics I've, I've ever been around. Literally, like uh, any system. I can remember him fixing a... Uh, a desktop computer in the 90s where, you know, this was quite new technology. Something was up with it. And uh, he kind of pulled the whole box apart, like my mother's eyes just rolling out of her head. Uh, pulls it all apart, works out what's up with it, sticks it all back together again, and then goes back to fixing 1970s VWs, you know. So I've been working with this guy and learning from him as, as much as I could before we got to the point where I realized uh, fathers and sons probably shouldn't work together long term. And I went to work for Ford at a dealership. And uh, I had skills in f fixing things, which uh, I didn't think really were going to go anywhere. My dad had said, you know, don't become a mechanic. Do something else with your life. The only other skill set I had really is I did a lot of climbing. Now, hang on. I'm on a tool ship. I know how to fix things. And I know how to climb. Like, <laughs> this was a square peg in square hole. Like, it was absolutely fantastic. I was very lucky and I didn't really realize it at the time. I was uh, there just at the period when a guy called Doug Watson had been brought in from Australia to do some rigging work on the ship. And Doug is and was at that time, even though he was a much younger man then, uh, one of the world's foremost tall ship riggers. He'd been in the tall ship world since he was 15, 16. He had hands like spades. He could climb the rigging like hand over hand with straight arms and straight legs because he could grip the rigging with his, his toes, like with his big toe and the next toe along, whatever that toe is called, he could grip hold of the rigging like that, almost like a monkey, which meant that he was, he was able to climb with, with straight arms. And uh, man, he could, he could do a rig run, which was up the backstay and across the triatic, the piece of rigging that connects the two masts together, and then down the forestay on this, we were what, 144 feet, the mast was 110 foot high, the main mast, he could go up and across and down in like two minutes or something crazy. Knot work, uh, uh, decorative work, um, technical rigging work in terms of um, creating systems, this guy had it all at his fingertips. Suddenly, I'm there right alongside him learning and working and I got this incredible appreciation for the fact that in sailing, like basically if you're sweating, you're kind of doing it wrong at some level. There's, there's a way for doing everything. Now I'm not saying it's not hard work, but if you get it right, there is a way in which things just seem effortless. It's like somebody who's a, a virtuoso on the, the piano or, or the flute or the, the violin. They don't seem like they're struggling their way through it. They're just 
making it happen. And that's what it was for me about sailing. I think the thing that really hooked me was the fact that suddenly we had this situation where there was a right way and a wrong way of doing it. And not somebody who needs lots of control and lots of uh, organization in their life, but man, it's a lot easier trying to hunt down the answers to things when uh, it's very clear that there's a right way of doing something and a wrong way of doing something. And I think that st stuck with me all the way through my sailing is that, um, that hunting out the, the perfect way to do things, that hunting out the excellence in seamanship. It's the strapline of, of Spartan now, the company which I run. It's, that's what we're aiming for. And it started right there on GFOM 22 years ago. So GFOM for me was a starting point which then blossomed into initially a year working for Outward Bound. I was a volunteer. I worked on the ship. I did a tour ships race up to Osaka. I also worked in the, the workshops at the school fixing boats and learning how to varnish things and learning how to work with wood with uh, Ah Chung who was a master carpenter and uh, an incredibly fun guy who looked after me a lot when I was in Hong Kong to begin with. And it started me on this path where I realized I was going to have to be in and around the sea. I went back to the UK, I went back to Lancaster University and uh, I started doing a degree in law and um, realized very quickly that um, I didn't want to do a degree in law. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it wasn't a degree in law. I remember sitting, I think the second lecture that we ever attended with my good friend, um, Bill Murray. And um, the first lecture had been like all kind of daring do. And, and basically we were going to be fighting crime uh, and injustice single-handedly throughout the British Isles in much the same way as um, Perry Mason or, or Ironsides or someone like that was doing in the US and it all sounded amazing and then the second lecture was about I think it was like the nature of the British Constitution and at that point I I just glazed over I don't know I I just didn't feel like this was going in the direction that I'd hoped it was going to go so I had a look at the the banister that was running down the side of the auditorium it was a big heavy wooden thing, maybe a foot deep and a couple of inches wide. And I noticed that whoever had done the woodwork on this particular banister, despite being probably part of a work team that had pitched the lowest quote, the craftsman that had put this slab of wood down the side of this university uh, auditorium had taken the time to line up the wood grain on the wood plugs covering the screws in such a way that they almost blended in perfectly with the wood. And as I contemplated the, uh, <laughs> the craftsmanship of this unknown, uh, unknown fabricator, I realized that I really didn't want to be a lawyer and that uh, I didn't need to therefore be in this auditorium. And I passed my, my pad and my pens to Bill and, and left and never went back. And um, it was quite a long time until I really went back to another lecture. I think I went to stay with my brother in Holland where he was living and have a think about life. And then I got lots of letters from the university saying like, are you coming back or not? Eventually, I, I decided that what I wanted to study was linguistics. Linguistics was something I really enjoyed being involved in at, at university. I didn't give it my full attention in any way, shape or form. And I apologize to any lecturers who had the misfortune to have anything to do with me during university. I thought it was terribly interesting to study how people communicate with each other. We weren't learning languages. It's not that kind of linguistics. We were learning you know, the psychology of language and how language comes about and uh, how we use language and how language is constructed. And I thought, my God, like the way that people communicate is uh, 
obviously hugely unique to the, the human race, but an incredibly important part of, of what we do day to day. And with that warm and fuzzy thought in my mind, I then completely ignored the rest of the course for the next uh, three years. Linguistics is very cool, but what I did was went and joined the Royal Naval University unit based in Liverpool and spent every waking hour I could on board a university Royal Naval patrol vessel. So yeah, I love linguistics, but still don't know very much about it. The Royal Navy University unit was something that was, um, was really good for me. Being in the Navy was not going to be the right lifestyle for me. I remember having moral issues with exactly where this was all going because I, you know, I'd read a lot of Wilfred Owen and uh, Rudyard Kipling and things. I knew, I knew what the deal was and uh, the deal obviously is at the end of the day you may be asked to put your efforts and your energy and potentially your life where your mouth is. I had a few problems with that. I talked to my commanding officer and he said, well, don't worry about them. It's just Johnny Foreigner. You just need to press the button. And at that point, I realized, like, okay, I really like being at sea, but uh, I don't think the Navy's going to be 100% the right thing for me. So finished up with the Royal Navy unit without actually being called up to active service. I think if there was a list of a thousand different types of military personnel who could be potentially sent to uh, an arena of war, the Royal Navy University units would be like number 999 shortly behind uh, somebody's dog or something like uh, I did learn however a huge amount about navigation about command structure about um, cautious uh, seamanship about um, the nature of command and and for that it was absolutely fantastic but uh, I was very happy to to leave that and and kind of have the pressure of how I was going to fit in removed from me and set off into the next part of my life, which was, I was then 22, I took a year out during university to travel in Australia and, and work on another tour ship there, but at 22, I kind of popped out into the world with a little bit of debt that needed to be sorted out, so I, I went and worked for a while. Really, having had no further experience with um, sailing apart from the time on Fong. so I then went to work in China and Korea and uh, Thailand with, with Bill and another friend called Stephen Greenwood and um, we had a heap of fun and it all came down really to one evening, one of my students in Korea asked me if I would like to go to the theatre with her another group of uh, students. So I was teaching MA students, uh, ed <laughs> because I had a degree in linguistics, believe it or not, I was teaching uh, like advanced English which was... Uh, mostly based on my ability as a native speaker and not on my ability to complete a linguistics a, a, a degree for all the reasons I've just described. But anyway, this, this group of maybe 10 mature students uh, invited me along and the movie we went to see was The Pirates of the Caribbean. And perhaps you can see here why we've got a tipping point coming up. I'm watching this and I'm enjoying it. Obviously the opening scene where he's on this uh, boat that's sinking and it gets to the dock and stuff like, okay, I'm getting hooked. and. Uh, I had done enough time at sea on a tall ship to be pretty uh, knowledgeable about the subject matter, so I'm, you know, kind of eyeballing these tall ships and all the rest of it. And then completely unexpectedly, there's that bit where they end up on the island and they're a bit drunk, um, uh, Jack Sparrow and uh, Elizabeth Swan. And uh, he says to her something along the lines of, a ship is not just a hull and sails and a rudder. That's not what a ship is. That's what a ship needs. What a ship is is freedom. And at that point, <laughs> at that point, 
uh, I knew things had to change. I had already been starting to get a little bit kind of uh, hemmed in by being in a classroom a lot. I'd already been starting to hanker to get back out into the outdoors. But at that moment, I realized what I needed to do was be a pirate. So um, I gave in my resignation the next day and, uh, and applied for working back at Outward Bound in Hong Kong. And um, took a little bit of time to get visas organized, uh, spent some time in the UK back working with my dad for a couple months, which in hindsight was actually the last time we were ever going to really properly work together and was, uh, was fantastic. But soon enough, headed out to Hong Kong to work as an instructor. And, uh, and I engaged in all aspects of what was going on at school again. I, I was back sailing tall ships. I was back, well, not tall ship. I was actually, the tall ship had been sold. I was sailing on a 67-foot um, X-Challenge boat. And that was super cool. And I was suddenly excited about this thing called the Challenge Race and what that was all about. And then dismayed to find out that by 2005 or whatever it was, I had already missed the boat and Challenge Business had already finished. So... Yeah, we're working on this boat and we bought a little um, expedition boat, open boats, about 36 foot long and spent, I think, two or three years there um, working up to the point where I was the, the mate on board the challenge boat and the head of the sailing department. But at that point, I realized I've got I've to get out of here. I've got I to gotta move on to other things. So I left out of bound and went to work on super yachts. And super yachts were something which, again, stretched my seamanship, stretched my abilities, but it was not something that I was going to necessarily continue long term. I didn't really fancy the idea of being someone's butler, but I was willing to put up with a lot to be able to sail the kind of uh, boats that uh, were available. But um, come 2008, I got the opportunity to go to the UK to commission a boat for the Hong Kong Yacht Club sailing team that was being entered for the Commodore's Cup that year. And uh, I got to say, like, although I've done a lot of racing, I'm not driven by it. I, I, I love it still because you're trying to sail your boat as efficiently as possible. You're trying to get the very best out of the craft. You're trying to demonstrate your mastery of a hard skill. And for all those reasons, I love racing. And I, you know, I've proven that in difficult circumstances, offshore with broken teeth and... Uh, and no water maker and, and kept racing when I could have easily dipped out of the race and, and, and gone and got the teeth and the water maker fixed. But I would still say that I'm not necessarily a hugely competitive person. At that moment in 2008, a lot of things all came into alignment. I, I started doing a bit of racing and then discovered the clipper race. And the clipper race, obviously, <laughs> um, to be honest, I think the clipper race is really a it's a sail training event with a race element. I think, in fact, Clipper might have even said that to us at the time. Whenever you're going to get a group of people together who are not professional sailors, it's sail training. So, okay. The Clipper race, for those who are not necessarily aware of it, is a race which is operated by Clipper Ventures and figureheaded by Sir Robin Knox Johnson, the first person ever sail solo non-stop around the world, 1969. And um, it is... Uh, an organization which over the last 20 odd years, nearly 25 years now, has probably brought more people to offshore sailing than any other institution. Um, there's often a lot of criticism, oh, the boats are slow, <clears throat> oh, the, the crew, you know, they, they come back knowing more about um, baking bread than they do about um, sail trim. And like for all those people that say those kind of things, I'll bet you a penny to a pound 
that uh, not one of them has actually ever either engaged in that race or engaged in meaningful offshore sailing because anybody that has knows that it's a race. It's a proper race and people are working damn hard to do whatever they can to win that race. Like if you have two old jalopy cars at the traffic lights and they're similarly matched, like it's game on, that's a race, right? So it doesn't matter if the clipper boats are heavier than comparable 68 footers. These are boats which by the end of their lifespan have done four trips around the world. Like that is hard yakka. And these are boats which are going up against the Northeast monsoon to get from Singapore to Qingdao, that's a route that the Volvo boats don't even do it more because they started breaking up in 2005 because they can't handle it. So the Clipper race is a race, but yes, it's a race uh, that is a sail training race. And um, it was a perfect shoe-in for me. Um, there was a boat which was sponsored by Qingdao, the, uh, the uh, northeastern city, which is sort of designated as the Chinese sailing city. Um, I've been working in Hong Kong, so there was symbiosis there. And I've been doing a lot of sail training without a bound. So yeah, obviously it was going to work out. So I did uh, the Clipper race in 2009 through to 2010. And uh, we had five podium spots overall, I seem to remember. And we came in seventh overall, which uh, I think is a fair representation of the fact that A, I probably didn't have the skill set I needed to go any further in the fleet. I think B, our crew was firmly focused on getting the most out of the event as uh, in terms of the, uh, the human endeavor rather than necessarily the technical performance. I think for me, the thing that I got from it most was the fact that we all got around in one piece, which, geez, you know, I didn't have much hair when I went into that race. By the time I came out of it, it had gone half gray. By the time the next year had passed, which I'll tell you about in a second, it was completely gray. But um, the cool thing was that, yeah, I suddenly was indeed the captain of a vessel which had circumnavigated the world, crossed oceans, faced down storms and, and issues with crew, and had, had got a good round beginning to the start of a career. And, and then something completely unexpected happened. Sir Robin Knox Johnson had previously engaged in the uh, VLUX 5 Oceans race and uh, had an Open 60 lying alongside the marina where all the clipper boats were docked. Every clipper skipper had uh, snuck his way on board and had a look around it and dreamed a little bit. And I was uh, in there with them, but I had also had the audacity to say in my bio when I was working as a clipper skipper that I wanted to race solo around the world. We had tried to get sponsorship. We'd gone to people, had a proposal, all these kind of crazy things. We'd um, proposed three different budgets. You know, there'd be the cheap budget of 500,000 euros, the, the medium budget at, uh, uh, 800,000 or something and the more expensive one at 1.3 and we felt at that time that just if we put our hand up and, and you know jiggled around with some pictures of uh, sailboats that people were just going to throw money at me well that was a crashing kind of realization that no they're not so by the end of the clipper race I didn't have any sponsorship nice idea Chris well done the the Velux race was only two months away and I was done I I I took my boat back to Gosport, where the Clipper race is based in the UK. Finished up everything, tidied all the kit out of it, um, did all the safety checks, the rig checks, all the things you got to do. And literally on the Friday, that I, the last day I worked there, I walked into the office and gave him my paperwork and said thanks very much. And you know, everyone gave me a cheer and another skipper leaving after another good year and all that stuff. And I turn around and start walking out the door, and Sir Robin Knox Johnson comes out of his office, and I thought, oh, he's going to say thanks as well. And he said, you come in here a minute. 
So, okay. Now, I had run my boat aground uh, in the UK before I set off on the race. I had smashed into a metal navigational mark. I had knocked it into the dock, so I knew that he knew who I was. Um, a lot of other skippers had done similar things, but um, they didn't perhaps all do it in one week, which had led him to, um, <clears throat> led him to uh, notice uh, the man from Hong Kong who didn't seem to be able to drive a boat. But um, he called me into the office and I sat down. This guy who, you know, is my father's sailing hero and has uh, been my boss for the last year and is my own sailing hero, says to me, so you want to do the Velux race? Yeah, yeah. You still want to do the Velux race? Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, it's a little surreal, this conversation, but yeah, sure, I still want to do it. Well, if I give you my boat and I tell you we've got a sponsor who's willing to put 100,000 in, to get a Briton in the race, do you reckon you can get the boat ready? I'm like, oh. <laughs> now, let's just have a think for a second. This boat has not been sailed like competitively in four years. It's been in storage most of that time. It's got more weed on the bottom. It's got like a coral reef growing on the bottom. It's got birds' nests up the mast. It's got prawns living in the ballast tanks. This thing looks like it's escaped from the future when you're walking down the dock towards it, but very quickly you realize that it's a very long way from being uh, operational and I knew that somebody else had already taken the boat uh, with the intention of entering the Velux race with it with a budget of 400,000 euros and after a month had given the boat back and said it, it can't be done for that money. So I'm sitting there across from my hero, my dad's hero, my boss with this life-changing opportunity on the table and uh, thinking about all this, what are you going to do? What would you do? I said, well, Basically, yes, but I'm going to need the weekend to think about it. And he seemed to think that was okay. So I left his office with my heart riding very high in my chest and a big smile on my face and didn't realize that what was going to happen next would uh, be another life-changing uh, <laughs> period in my life for a number of reasons, but would lead to me becoming the 182nd person ever to sail solo around the world. Okay, so that's half an hour of me chatting my head off. Uh, it's a little bit like being on the deck of a boat at night on a watch, uh, just chatting and telling your story, but I figure if we're gonna have an understanding later on of who I am and what I'm all about, then it's probably best to just tell the, the origin story. It's my origin story of how I got to be <laughs> this gray, I guess. Share this with other people if you think there's folks that uh, wanna hear someone chatting on about sailing and. Send us a few suggestions of what you'd like to hear. Anybody writes in and tells me that they want to hear about the pyramids, you know that's good for six or seven hours. So let's leave it for now and we'll see how this goes and uh, hopefully we can catch up later on and uh, I'll tell you the story of how I sailed solo around the world, having never sailed solo before, having never sailed an Open 60 before on a boat that we put together on a shoestring budget in eight weeks whilst living in a VW van beneath it. So, yeah. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Bye-bye.